welcome back for another episode of the Shoegazing Podcast. I'm Jesper Ingevaldsson of Shoegazing.com, one of the largest blogs in the world on quality footwear. In this episode, you'll get to meet Seiji McCarty, a shoemaker with an American father and a Japanese mother who grew up in Philadelphia on the US East Coast, but now since seven years lives in Tokyo, Japan. Here he is merging the Japanese highly skilled craftsmanship with traditional American style footwear. This was not always the case though. Up until a few years ago he did more dressy British Japanese style shoes. But Seiji felt that it wasn't fully him and what he really wanted to do. So he decided to revamp the brand. We'll talk a lot about this process and about how his American heritage started to blossom first when he lived in Japan, with the passion you can find here for this. About how he really wished to be part of the Japanese preservation of American style and much more. So enjoy your listen. All right, Seiji McCarthy, welcome to the Shugisen podcast. Thank you, Jasper. I'm happy to be here in your relatively new play. I mean, not not that new, new for me, because you weren't here last time I visited, but I was like three years ago now. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's good to have you back. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be in Japan again, finally, after all these postponed trips. What a a three years it's been. Yeah, we're actually, I mean, this location is really, we're very close to the Harajuku area, yep. the like hipster area of Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, so it's... Uh, close to the Motisando. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's a really nice location. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to talk about sort of revamping a shoe brand. Um, but I'm thinking as we often do, I'd like to sort of... Uh, uh, get those who don't know about Seiji McCarthy know a bit who you are. And you have a relatively winding road to reach where you are today. Uh, so for those who don't know your background, could you give us a summary? Sure. Um, I will try and make it concise because yeah. it is a bit of a winding path. Yeah. Um, and before I do that, I'll just prep it by saying there's a very famous commencement speech by Steve Jobs at Stanford University, where he talks about looking at your life, you can kind of only make sense of it looking backwards and connecting the dots. Uh-huh. So I'll kind of give you those dots first, <laughs> and then afterwards I'll try and explain to me at least how they make some sense. Okay. Um, so I always loved shoes as a kid. That's just been a given from when I was really, really young. Um, and I also happened to grow up during that time in the States when Nike Air and Reebok and all those big companies were really introducing exciting new footwear on a, just on a monthly basis. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing a pair of Nike air trainers, the ones that McEnroe, John McEnroe, famous tennis player wore. And it was the first time I said to myself, I need to buy multiple pairs of those because they didn't used to come out after they, after the initial run, that was it. Yeah. So Sneakers has always been, you know, footwear, sneakers has just always been there. So that's that's just the kind of base. But um, in terms of the winding path, um, I'll just fast forward. You know, university, I studied philosophy. After university, I moved to Japan. I'm half Japanese. I wanted to learn more about Yeah, because you grew up in uh, grew first up in Germany, States. but then in the States most of your Yeah, grew up in the States. Um, 
then after university, decided to come to Japan, get to learn about Japan more, my cultural heritage. Um, then I went to London and studied international relations. Um, and then after that, I was a business consultant for the NBA, um, the National Basketball Association. I was a you know big fan. Also, that whole... 80s 90s growing up was nba michael jordan hip-hop um i think most kids in america were influenced by that yeah. somehow um then after working at the nba in new york at the head office i went to business school in singapore after business school in singapore i moved to beijing to work for the olympics um because that had always been a kind of career goal um uh, to work for the Beijing Olympics. Uh, I worked for the NBA, but I was the person in the middle between the NBA and the organizing committee. All right. Um, yeah. Which is not a great place to be. <laughs> the in-between guy. Yes, now, I was really yes. the best yeah, position. In-between guy is a hard... Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, that might tie into why I actually kind of cut my career at that point with the NBA. Um, and then pretty much after that, I said, okay, I did what I wanted to do. Now, what do I want to do? Not for kind of, quote, success reasons, but for my own personal uh, fulfillment. Because remember, this was, uh, sorry, I don't say remember, but 2008 was what they call in Japan the Lehman shock. Yeah. Just, you know, tons of people were opening up, what, bespoke chocolate Uh, factories and everyone was doing kind of you know hand work and I was definitely influenced by that um, so there's the kind of very winding path but now if I kind of connect those dots I studied philosophy in university but my favorite philosophy was a Chinese philosophy called Taoism from you know this is from thousands of years ago and the examples that they used in that in this book called the Zhuangzi of people who embody this kind of life were all craftsmen. Yeah. They were all people. And it would talk about, you know, in the beginning, if you're the butcher, you're just hacking at the meat. And by, you know, five years on, 10 years on, you don't even have to polish. Uh, you don't even have to sharpen your blade anymore. And that was always very compelling to me. Mm. That vision of kind of submitting to a craft, uh, honing it, working your life towards becoming better at something kind of quality for quality's sake. So that might explain why I'm a craftsman today. Mm. Um, I mentioned the business, uh, being a business consultant. Well, I run my own business now. Um, obviously, I love shoes. It's a business that makes shoes. <laughs> In terms of the international aspect, moving here and there, the world is obviously opened up even more than when I studied international relations. But in the future, I'll be doing trunk shows in America, in Europe, And just this sense of being a global citizen is fun and uh, exciting. Yeah. So hopefully that gives a little bit of, there is some pathway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So but how did you end up in the shoe world then eventually? Um, so as I mentioned, being a sneakerhead, um, and in America where sneakers were kind of just everything um, when I was growing up, uh, After the NBA, I said, I don't want to do the office job anymore. I want to design sneakers. And oh, I yeah. spoke with some people at Adidas and other places, and they gently told me, even if we bring you in, you're not going to become a designer. You have no design experience. You'll be doing the same kind of work you did for the NBA, which is great. 
but that's not what I wanted to do. So I went to a design school in Italy. It's called Ars Sutoria. It's in Milan. Um, and it's kind of a general shoe design program. Yeah. Um, and I think probably the third or fourth day I was there, um, my friend um, said to me, let's go to some shoe stores. And in Europe, it is, yeah, as you well know, there's a far kind of richer shoe culture around leather shoes and mm. I mean, America made great shoes, but we outsourced production. And by the 80s and 90s, um, I don't think there's that much of a culture left. Um, so I walked into a store, which is a Berluti store. And I probably told you this you know, when you interviewed me before, but I saw a pair of single monk straps and I tried them on. And that was probably the first pretty good pair of leather-soled shoes I'd ever worn. Hmm. Um and just instantly, uh, you know, the back straightened up, the shoulders went back. I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, this is the feeling and the look that I want to be able to offer people. Sneakers are great, but it's a different feeling. Hmm. And these shoes are, at that age, at that time, were just much more appealing to me. Hmm. Yeah. So... I decided on within three or four days of that program, I wanted to make handmade shoes. Um, I only learned pattern making and stuff at that school. So then the road to becoming, you know, this is like 10 years later now to where I am now has also been really winding, Mm. visiting different workshops, begging, pleading, having amazing craftsmen teach me, um, struggling, uh, you know, overcoming little by little challenges. And then, if you try hard enough and long enough, you you kind of get the hang of it. Yeah, because yeah. you've really been, I mean, you've been in learning shoemaking in, is it Italy, Hungary, yep. Germany, and Japan? England, England Japan. Japan. Well, yeah. yeah. So you've, uh, but that uh, I would say must be quite a good, that you not only have one or two shoemaking schools that yeah. you've learned from, but you also have, I mean, the Austro-Hungarian one and, Italian one and yeah a lot of different types of shoemaking schools so to speak I think so now looking back I think you're right I think at the time if someone had just offered me an apprenticeship which is what I really wanted Mm. um, if someone had just offered me an apprenticeship and I could have learned everything in I don't want to say everything but if I could have really learned shoemaking within a year to two years then learned the other parts of that shoemaker's making process i would have been happier but looking back now yeah that variety and that finding my own path is kind of why i'm doing the style i'm doing now Mm. whereas maybe if i'd gone to england or italy and just i mean i would have wanted it to be england but maybe i'd be making english style shoes today which are great but maybe that's not who i am Mm. And because uh, when you finally started your own brand, uh, which was at the World Football Gallery, uh, you were located there. Uh, how long ago was it? Five? I think I started there six years six ago. Six years ago, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what type of shoes did you want to make at that time? How would you sort of describe this C.J. McCarthy brand? Um, I think what I was envisioning it as was kind of a classic English, let's say, Edward Green-ish style, but elevated with the handwork. So maybe a little bit more refined version of that um, kind of well-proportioned, balanced English shoe. 
is what I envisioned. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how did it go with finding customers during those years? Well, I got to say, um, there was a lot of handmade shoemakers then, and yeah. there's probably as many now, if not more. So it's not easy. Um, and I was very fortunate that um, one of the great shoemakers who taught me, uh, Hiro Yanagimachi, he introduced me to the owner of the shop where Hiro started himself. Yeah. And um, that was really, uh, it's Mr. Fukata. He basically took me on without even seeing a sample, just trusting Hiro Yanagimachi's word. Um, so incredibly grateful to him. And then he's helped a bunch of young shoemakers when Hiro started out 25 years ago. Yeah. He started like out there. Um, other shoemakers like, um, Quadrifolio Kunai-san, I know did trunk shows there. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they, he has this relatively big shoe shop, World Football Gallery in, uh, in Tokyo. Yeah. With shoes from all over the world, different yeah. styles. So, um, And they introduced a lot of uh, brands to the Japanese market yeah, as well. Yeah. Kind of a pioneer. So he basically said uh, they had opened up a new space on the second floor, kind of an uh, atelier for artisans. He said, come here. Um, you don't have to pay rent. If you get sales, you pay a commission. So we were both incentivized to uh, obviously wanted to sell shoes. And then the more shoes I sell, the more money that they make as well. So we did a few kind of intro sales where we would sell the shoes for um, a pretty steep discount. So from the beginning, I was fortunate to get a bunch of orders. Um, and that's kind of how it started. But I needed to sell them at a pretty steep discount in the beginning. Because mm -hmm. competition was rather fierce as well. You're not known... Um, If you can give someone that value proposition, look, you're getting handmade. Um, I was offering trial fittings with some of the shoes, even if it was just kind of minor made-to-measure um, changes. Um, you're getting a fully handmade shoe um, at the less than what an Edward Green or one of those brands costs. Here in, in Japan, right? Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah, that's a good deal yeah. for sure. It was a good deal yeah, for the customer, and it was a good deal for me just to get that experience because uh you don't really improve until you're making customer shoes yeah so then a while ago um sort of in conjunction with you moving out of the world football gallery and setting up at your own premises uh, you also decided to do sort of a revamp of your brand can you tell us about that yeah um i did about About three to four years ago, I began thinking to myself, what kind of shoes are you really making? What kind of shoes do you want to make? What kind of shoes do customers want? And um, I think up to that point, I was pretty obsessed with the craft. Um, as you know, just for shoemaking, it might surprise people who, I mean, I'm assuming most people don't know what goes into kind of becoming a craftsman. I mean, why would you? But it probably takes anywhere from five to ten years to really get the hang of it. Hmm. There's so much to learn. Not just technical skills, but, you know, what's balance? What's proportion? Um, of course, fitting. 
And so the first few years I was doing it, I think I was single-mindedly focused on delivering people shoes that were well-balanced and had good fit. And style, of course, is important. But it's only after I sort of cleared that hurdle of thinking all the time about the basics that I found more freedom to think about, okay, how, what, what, what kind of shoes do I want to offer to people stylistically? Hmm. Which, in the end, is maybe the most important thing. Um, and then being in Japan, even though I'm American, there's, there's a, uh, author W David Marks, who wrote a book called Ametora, how Japan saved American style. And it doesn't mean save just as in rescued it, but literally means they bought pieces in America and kept them hmm. and American vintage is huge here. There's an appreciation in Japan for American style that is probably greater than in America itself. Yeah, I mean, when you visit some of the stores, some of the areas here, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, amazing. And I'm not from America and not that into that sort of yeah uh, style myself. But you really have to appreciate what I mean, folks are doing here. Purely as an example, if you were say into vintage American shoes, I cannot think of another place in the world where. A 10-minute walk is Super 8, which offers incredible vintage American shoes. Mm. Then if I hop on a train, 25 minutes, I go to Koenji. Yeah. There's Whistler. Yeah. I mean... Those places are amazing. And that's just for shoes. If I want American vintage chinos or tons of other stuff, there's vintage shops five minutes away in Harajuku. (laughs) So just the appreciation for Ivy style, American style here made me appreciate my own country's style um i think up until that point you kind of reject your own you think what's abroad is better or cooler um but i grew up on the east coast um so ivy style and prep is kind of my will well um and only by coming here did that sink in Hmm. and then making friends like ethan newton from bryce lens who has a lot of american inspired style in his shop and talking with him and realizing what kind of style I personally wore and wanted to offer. Because when you do you, you, you do your best work. Mm. And so that was the thinking really, what feeling do I want to give to the customers? Of course it's fit, but it's also that relaxed elegance, that um, laid back sophistication, which in my mind represents the best of American style. So how did you go about to sort of do this uh, revamp? Um, I had decided right before COVID happened uh, to make the move. I found a spot, which we're in right now, Mm -hmm. and uh, moved in. I moved in um, a little bit after COVID, but I decided to move in before. And then COVID hit. And remember in the beginning, we thought, okay, this this two weeks is going to be annoying. (laughs) This two months is going to be annoying. Well, basically that first year to year and a half, I had all the time in the world to do preparation because no customers were coming from abroad. Even my uh, clients who had bought my shoes before weren't going out. So I was focusing all that time on developing this style. And that was, you know, going to the vintage shops, Looking at things, um, working with uh, uh, my upper maker, the upper maker who worked with me to um, kind of find out 
what works with the kind of last that you want. A lot of iterations. Um, but basically, you know, like a half month of just intense sampling and construction. Hmm. Yeah. And because uh, you were also like all silent on online and yes, yeah, sort of uh, moved away from it all for I, a year or so. I did for about a year. I did not post a single thing on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and I guess at the time I was thinking, well, you want everything to be done, and then you just kind of show people, and that's what I wound up doing. Um, in retrospect, you should have more of a trickle philosophy where as things are coming out, build anticipation. So yeah, even when COVID started to get a bit better, things were slow. Mm. Um, but to be honest, it did take a lot longer than I thought to get things up and running. I thought within, you know, six months I could do it all. And for the actual physical space, um, rebranding, packaging, of course, samples, leathers, um, it took about a year. Mm. I have to say. So how would you describe the new Seji McCarthy brand now? Um, if I had to describe it, um, if the first thing that I felt I was going for was this kind of Edward Green British style, yeah. then when you think of American style now, there's really only one shoemaker who's well known that still makes in America, that's Alden. Hmm. Um, like I said, I do wear a lot of, um, American style clothing and I do wear Alden's. Um, so if I had to characterize it from that kind of outward perspective, maybe it would be like if Edward Green and Alden had a child yeah. and it was like Alden Green. Mm. So with this American kind of relaxed, a lot of suede, a lot of cordovan, you know, we do penny loafers. Oxfords and everything, but um, a lot of round toes, almond toes, but this kind of relaxed feeling, but elevated with the handmade uh, construction. So maybe, for lack of a better word, a, a more refined version or an elevated version of what I feel as an American to be kind of American style with mm -hmm. this. Uh, I don't want people to feel nervous wearing the shoes bespoke shoes are very expensive mto shoes are also expensive they will get you know dinged and nicked i don't want you to feel bad about that that's part of the shoe um also it can be repaired um a lot of the time um i want you to feel relaxed so if anything i would say relaxed elegance is what i aspire to mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, just so people know what type of offerings do you have you have Made to order, made to measure, and uh, full bespoke. Yes. Uh, what's the prices? And yeah. Um, made to order starts from 200,000 yen, which right now to put into dollars would be a lot less. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the Americans are rich in Japan. At yeah. The yeah. So maybe let's say $1,500. Yeah. Something like that. Um, MTO basically is we have fitting samples prepared. Um, if you know your size um, in UK sizing um, or you have ready to wear or MTO from, let's say, another you know, Japanese maker in UK sizing, um, we can make the shoe in that size and send to you. Of course, if you come to the workshop, you try on the shoe. Um, 
MTM would be when there's an area we need to tweak a bit, more about adding on than reducing. So for example, if you have a lower arch or you need more room in your instep or your pinky toes hitting, those are things we can accommodate quite easily. Um, and then there's a small upcharge for each adjusted area. Mm-hmm. Remotely, we also are able to send trial fitting shoes in the MTO stock house last to you. Mm-hmm. You try them on, then we discuss the adjustments that need to be made. And we, so we can do remote MTM that mm-hmm. way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, those shoes are like the handwork, the, the uppers are the same as the bespoke. Uh, but then the sort of bottoming is uh, with uh, uh, machine stitched also and yeah. so on. Yeah, it's what they call in uh, Japan kubujitate, which is uh, 90% handmade. Yeah. So I last the shoe. Yeah, the uppers are made the same. Um, the leathers are the same. Um, last the shoe, uh, welt the shoe by hand. Then hand it over to the craftsman and have the sole stitched on and the heel built. Um, and some kind of, I don't want to say rough finishing, but some basic finishing done. Mm-hmm. Then I get it back and I do the handwork to make it as close to handmade, fully handmade as possible. Mm. Yeah, and I've seen the samples here and they look really Really nice. Um, Thank for you. an untrained eye, it's not, especially if you see them on their feet, I mean, not think anyone would see the difference to your real bespoke one. Yeah. I mean, of course, fully handmade, there's a finesse to it that maybe the, um, the 90% handmade don't necessarily have. Mm. But the appeal of the MTO is slightly different. We're trying to get you a shoe within six months that is you know, fully customizable in terms of design. And um, I think for some people, that ability to have the shoe sooner um, in, a, in a standard... When you order MTO, you know what the shoe is going to look like. Mm. Um, so to be able to kind of offer that certain level, this is what it's going to look like, um, this is, is, is attractive to people and at a much lower price point. Um, so in exchange for that, there's a trade-off, but the trade-off is, as you just mentioned, I believe, a pretty good one. Mm. And uh, what about the full bespoke? Uh, what's the pricing? And Sorry, so full that? bespoke starts from 400,000. Yeah. So maybe USD 3,200, something like that. Yeah. It's hard to know. Sorry, math isn't my specialty. Um, and... Uh, Bespoke has a trial fitting, usually one trial fitting. If we need to do two, we'll do two. Uh, trial fitting in about six months and then delivery of the shoe six months after that. So about a year total. Hmm. Um, and those orders are taken in our workshop in yeah. Tokyo. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how, how is it things going now? Does things sort of starting to kick off uh, business-wise uh, now after... <laughs> And the pandemic also relaxes here in Japan, which here it's sort of postponed compared to Europe and the U.S. a bit. Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, I think most people I know haven't left Japan in the entire time Hmm. of COVID. So 
uh, yeah, I have no idea what's going on out there. Um, <laughs> it sounds good. Yeah, it's uh, we're we're more closer to a real the real uh, life before COVID than you are for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> it sounds fantastic. I, yeah. I it's hard to even imagine. Um, but yeah, business has really picked up um, recently. Um, the pandemic. Uh, has also introduced ways of ordering shoes and for me making shoes that I wouldn't have considered before. Mm. I think before um, I wasn't doing MTO, wasn't taking remote orders, but now because a lot of shoemakers do do remote remote orders, we're able to gauge what size works well for clients, for customers. And uh, that is a, a real part of the business now where it wasn't before. And that's actually... I wouldn't want to say thanks to COVID, but due mm. to COVID. And then, yeah, the in, in-person in visits to the workshop have really uh, kicked off. And especially now that uh, people can come in from abroad as of just three or four days ago, yeah, yeah. the difference just in three or four days is is quite remarkable. Yeah. Oh, um, nice. And I now it will only go. Yeah. Upwards, yeah. most likely. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, looking at t- today's climate after the pandemic hit and all, at least in Europe and the US, people in general dress way more casual. Uh, so it seems you hit just right there with the new sort of styling of your shoes. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's a uh, good timing uh, to make up for the part about opening the new concept during COVID. Mm. Um like I said, I haven't been abroad, so it's really actually hard for me to to gauge. I think in Japan, people did dress less formal, but Japan is a pretty formal society. Yeah, because I noticed now, uh, you still see all these folks in their uh, bad-fitting uh, navy suits and yep. cheap uh, cemented uh, black uh, derbies and stuff like that, which yeah. everyone looks like clones of each other yeah <laughs> uh, but they still seem to be the formal wear that is what you wear to to the office and all i can imagine japan being the last country where neckties are still yeah, yeah exactly that's true worn by a majority of yeah. working people um yeah so i i'm i'm i've heard and i'm trusting you that uh, yeah things are a lot more casual out there um my own style is even if i'm wearing a navy suit I'll probably be wearing suede oxfords. Um, like I said, suede, uh, cordovan, pebble grains, that type of stuff is naturally what personally I'm inclined to. So um, I guess it does go well with um, what people are wearing out there. I think in Japan there will always, well, knock on wood, I think there will always be a market for um, more formal yeah. shoes as well. But um, if people can dress casually but also want to wear really really um well-fitting and smart shoes that would be fantastic um because i think the sneaker uh boom and the trend towards extreme casualness everything runs in cycles Mm. and maybe that's run its course maybe not but just because you're Dressing casual doesn't mean you can't dress really well. Mm, yeah. And I mean, those interested in 
style and in quality. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a bunch of those guys in their suits and ties that are really well dressed here in Japan as well. And uh, well, they don't wear that for for weekends and stuff like that. So they they might come for this type of footwear instead. Exactly. Degree, yeah. yeah. Try on try on uh, some some bespoke loafers um, or MTO um, shoes and. Um, yeah, I think uh, for a while there's a sense that I wear a suit during the week and then in the weekend maybe it's cargo shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. Mm. That's fine, but you can still look really nice on your days off. Yeah. And it makes you feel great and it's just as comfortable. So mm. I'm a proponent of that. Yeah. Um, for, for many people, I would say bespoke or fine handmade made-to-measure or made-to-order shoes, yeah. they're often sort of associated with sleek, elegant shoes, with slim waists and, you know, close-cut heels and so on. Uh, do you think this sort of will change going forward with more shoemakers doing more casual styles and, yeah, sort of stuff that you do now? I think if people become successful at it, I think the reason that... Um, the reason that bespoke shoes have the reputation or the image that they do now is probably because some people did that really well. And then when those people become successful, the other makers say, well, that's where the market is. So if there's makers who introduce other styles and that proves to be popular, I think you'll see more of that. Um, In my mind, bespoke shoes, the benefits are obviously quality the fit and the elegance none of that changes by introducing a more relaxed style Mm. yeah i think in my mind um and what i've heard from people is i think for some people the turnoff of handmade is that it does have a somewhat almost aggressively finessed style yeah um which is great as an object but you might not be able to envision yourself putting it on your feet and wearing it And if you look at a lot of uh, traditional bespoke makers from Europe where the tradition started, you'll see elegant and smart shoes, but the chisel toe or the really, really tightly sculpted waist wasn't so dominant maybe until, I mean, to be honest, your blog and your podcast I learn as a shoemaker. So I've learned a ton. So you probably can speak this better than me, but I'm guessing that the reason that style is dominant now is because it's been successful, but that doesn't mean that that's what bespoke shoes are. Yeah. 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 Thanks. First of all. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, yeah, like you said, I think if you look at the history, you definitely had that back in the days as well, but you also had this thing mm-hmm. and you had, you had everything there. It's just that what sort of, lived on to a larger degree was the really elegant sleek stuff uh, uh, while this type of uh, bespoke or f- really fine handmade footprint sort of uh, disappeared to a larger degree yeah. so I'm happy to see that it's sort of coming back and we have other makers like uh, Akiratani in Italy who makes more traditional like casual Italian style shoes which I also think is really wearable in uh, today's Europe so to speak yeah. but like you said I mean for myself as well I mean I definitely wear dress shoes still and I yeah. always will to some degree yeah, yeah. Um, 
I guess one thing I would say for um, the kind of uh, style I'm trying to put out there is all the, in my mind, all the benefits of the handmade are there because, you know, handmade shoes have a kind of a lower profile, the more sculpted, the curves are pretty. We've got the beveled waist. We've got the really tight heel. It's just that you can do that in a way where the shoe is not intimidating. Uh, you can do that in a way that's just because you can do something doesn't mean you need to do it. Uh, so um, I think it's possible to make a very elegant shoe that has all these attributes that doesn't scream it. Hmm. And I think that would be more what I aspire to. Mm -hmm. And I mean, looking at your shoes, you have uh, several samples with the square outside and the beveled inside, which is a really sort of good example of, uh, if you look at the basic construction of yeah. doing just just that. Yeah, beveled waist is lovely. Um, it's almost kind of one of those things where you may be the only one who notices it when you you know, kick up your one leg on top of the other, yeah. um, but it's just so nice and beautiful. Um, that it's a treat for yourself almost, which is, you know, in some sense, what what some of this is. Mm, yeah. Um, so, but is it? Would you say is it more difficult to have shoes that sort of stands out towards factory-made Goodyear shoes with this style of footwear when you do handmade stuff? It could be. I think it could be because um, if you. If you do certain styling, it is clearly not a factory-made shoe. Mm. Um, with this kind of shoe, um, in my mind, whenever I see the client put on the shoe, it has that profile of the handmade, and it's more cupped, and the curves are handmade. But for example, I've had people ask, okay, well then, let, let's say for example with the loafer, mm. um, okay, this is your version of a full strap penny loafer. What makes it different than let's say an Alden? Mm. Um, in my mind, when I look at it, the general feeling is different. And then there's so many aspects to it, which are different. Um, the way you stitch the apron, mm. um, the way you have the waist, you know, beveled, uh, the tightness of the heel cup, uh, the stitching, also that slim profile we talk about, also just the finishing. Hmm. Um, to me, in my mind, it's a very different thing, hmm. but maybe it's an elevated thing instead of a um, different category of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think when people would wear this type of loafer instead of the older one, yeah, the, I mean, arc support and the oh, yeah, real yeah. leather heel stiffener and... Yeah, lots of these things would really make a difference for the wearer, um, even if it was just the MTO version, so to speak. Yeah, and tying back into what we, you know, talked about originally um, about you know when you start versus when you're a little bit further down the road. When I first started making shoes, um, let's say ten years ago, I could fit. I have very easy feet that can fit into pretty much every ready-to-wear option. Mm -hmm. um, The older you get, and this people this can happen to people at different ages, but the older you get, maybe your feet spread out a bit. I actually have um, some fitting issues now with shoes. Mm -hmm. um, my, this, I don't want to get gross, but my 
outer, my pinky toe gets smashed by shoes now. And it really hurts. And it's really <laughs> uncomfortable. Sort of exactly what my issue started to appear in recent years. Yeah. This fact that your feet flattens, which yeah. brings your pinky out. Yeah. And it hits the wall on shoes that before was perfectly fine. Really annoying. Yeah. And I don't want to get too graphic, but I, it can sometimes split my toenail, mm. which, is, which is really painful. Yeah. Um, and so I think as you... Um, as you know, this is not a this is not a shoe for you know every single person. Obviously, it's a very niche market. But if you really like shoes and you want something you can have for a long time, and you don't want to live on a daily basis with having your feet smashed in, that is another huge aspect of bespoke, which maybe gets lost in translation or presentation somehow. A finally a really narrow looking shoe, maybe you think that looks good. But I think as you wear more shoes and discover your own style, it's really nice to have a pair of shoes that look smart, but that are also comfortable. Mm. And one thing that I rarely think about uh, or is rarely talked about and which I didn't think that much about before is the fact that when you have proper, fully handmade bespoke shoes with you know real leather stiffeners, both front and back and all that, you also can fix things to a much larger degree than with ready to wear. Like for me now with the <laughs> issue with the pinky toes that I mentioned, yeah, uh, I actually brought a bunch of shoes back now to J- Japanese makers where they're going to sort those things out. Yeah. Um, things that on a ready to issue, I would just have to sell them because it wouldn't be possible to, yeah. to fix those issues. But with bespoke, you have much more, uh, both since you also of course have the last and you can really yeah. modify things properly but you also have the materials in the shoe that allows for this speaking. and I think a lot of this business is relationship based yeah um, I know you are a great supporter of you know shoemakers around the world and you know when a client has ordered a few pairs of shoes even if it's one pair of shoes um, you know you're sitting down you're talking to each other you're getting to know each other um, when they come in and they have a problem and you, you know, work together to make that shoe and you've personally spent that time, you want it to be worn. Mm-hmm. You want the person to feel good when they're wearing that thing that you've invested all this time and energy into. These are almost, you know, these are aspects about this, um, business or this trade, which are really cool. Yeah, for sure. For both sides. <laughs> this is what it's about. It's mm-hmm. that, uh. I don't even call it service, it's relationships. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's yeah, definitely one thing that we could talk more about the that's part of this yeah. uh, industry, so to speak. Um, I'm just thinking we should finish off with talking about if to give some sort of advice, uh, since you now <laughs> uh, an alum in this uh, category, uh, for, for other shoe brands or shoemakers who are looking at revamping their brand in a new direction, what what advice would you give to them? Um, very difficult to give advice because each person walks that path alone hmm. with support from people around them. I wouldn't have found my own voice without the voices of those around me. That's a tailor. That's a shoemaker. That's uh, the people I see, 
you know, walking in the street in Tokyo, friends, surround yourself with the people whose voices resonate, take advice. I get advice from people and sometimes I, I always appreciate advice, but maybe you could almost say don't listen to it or aren't able to incorporate it. And then only two, three years later, do you realize the value of it? Hmm. So always be open to advice about, um, Hey, why don't you try this? Hmm. And maybe you think at first, no, but that's not, that's not what I want to do. Other people can sometimes see things almost clearer than you can yourself. Of course you have to always trust yourself. You're the final editor, but surround yourself with people whose aesthetic sense or taste in music or movies or books, um, interest you and discover your own voice that way and keep trying to discover that voice because it never ends. But once you find your lane, opportunities open up because you're doing you, no one else can do you. And then you can create the business and the lifestyle that you want, as opposed to doing what other people are doing. Hmm. And is there anything you would have changed of your process, given what you know today? Um, anything I would change? Probably minor things. Oh, if you'd done this, you would have saved yourself some time. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing I would change is uh, even be more persistent. Uh, always keep moving forward. Um, you take your lumps. COVID was really just uh, it, COVID was just difficult. It, it was just for everyone, yeah. for everyone in the entire world. Sorry, this is not about shoemaking. Uh, obviously, COVID was just to go for everyone. And for a lot of people, really difficult because of, you know, uh, loss of life, stuff like that. But business-wise, extremely difficult. Uh, I'm proud that shoemakers here and other places were able to persevere. Um, keep your head up. Keep your head up is something I guess I would tell myself even more hmm. um, during the past few years. Yeah. But uh, I'm here, so I did keep my head up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it seems like uh, you're really going in the right direction now. And uh, I'm quite confident that it will continue. And I'm looking forward to when you come to Europe and yes. do US trunk shows and all that. Because uh, uh, I know that's something you're planning for the future. And I think that's really uh, something that could be amazing for sure yeah that's the uh that's the plan 2023 yeah. uh america and europe sweet sergio mccarthy thank you very much for being part of the shoegazing podcast thank you incredibly uh i've listened to every podcast um <laughs> always uh, read the blog learned a ton um it's a pleasure to have you I appreciate it cheers cheers Thanks for listening in on this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a good rating or comment in your podcast player. The Shoegazing Podcast will be back with a new episode in a short while. So hear you again soon. Mm-hmm.